Well, once again, I stepped to the pulpit, hungry, uh, hungry for bacon. I could smash a BLT right now. If anybody knows somewhere that sells one, let me know, because I'll be going there after service. But uh, it's good to have you here. As has been said before, welcome to City Life Suffolk. Good to have, as was again said before, Chris House leading worship, Gina here singing. Great having you guys. Awesome uh, worship set. Well, come on, we can uh, extend our worship through the word. And if you're here tonight and you brought the word of God, you can turn to John chapter 3, because that's where we're going to be tonight. And you chose a good night to be here because we're in the midst of a series, uh, we're calling it The Unusual Suspects, Profiles of Grace in Unexpected Places. We've been in it for a couple of weeks, and we started this series with Rahab. We talked about how from the cross of Christ, grace flows down and out to the down and out, right? That grace uses truth not to hammer people, but to help people. So you can podcast that, but the next week we talked about Mephibosheth, how God's grace isn't just to clean us up, but the end game of grace is so that we, freshly purified, can have communion with God, so that we can sit at the table with our king. So you can podcast that as well. But tonight we're going to step into yet another profile of grace that we find in Scripture. And we started this series a couple weeks ago with the question, who are some of your favorite heroes? And we got some answers from fiction, we got some answers from history, some answers... uh, 90% were probably from comic books, but hey, I I can get with that. But I'm going to switch that question, flip it on its head. I want to ask the question tonight, who are some of your favorite villains in pop culture, in movies, in books? Favorite villains? Anybody? Mike? Darth Vader? Still probably the winning answer in my book, but anybody else? Jerry Jones. (laughs) NFL reference for the win. Sorry, Stephanie. Voldemort. All right. Anybody else? Favorite villains? Negan. Walking Dead, right? Anybody else? Darth Maul. Let's just keep going. Start. Bubba Fett, right? Let's just, anybody, anybody else? Villains? Maybe you think at first glance, this is like an awkward question for church, because if I'm drawn to a villain, does that mean I'm drawn to evil? But the answer is no. Plenty of people may relate to villains. You don't have to be a villain to do so. A great screenwriter, a great author, they'll make villains that we can empathize with, that are charismatic, that give the viewer pause. It's not just black and white. That We can see that there's redeemable qualities in this person. Like somebody said, Darth Vader, Luke says again and again, there's still good in him, right? And we can see ourselves even in some instances, in the quote-unquote villain or the antagonist in the story. And aren't we all at one time or another, like these characters, seeking redemption? Sometimes in movies we see that happen. Again, Darth Vader, spoiler, sorry, uh, end of the movie, Return of the Jedi, he redeems himself, kills the Emperor. Terminator to Terminator 2, 3, Arnold goes from bad guy to good guy. Or let me, let me stop with these movies, Pride and Prejudice, right? What is it? Darcy. Starts out just a royal jerk, which is pretty much the villain in a romance novel. And by the end, right, he's, he's changed. He's been redeemed. So tonight, I want to look at John's gospel. I want to look at a few places, but I want to park it in John chapter 3. And we're going to talk about a, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And why is he an unusual suspect? Well, because in the gospels, the, the Pharisees, they, they seem like the villain. They seem like villains. You, you look at the word like nemesis. Nemesis means a long-standing rival, and we see that with Jesus, every time he had a public encounter, it seems like there's a Pharisee there just waiting for him to stumble and waiting to witness his downfall. And we see, uh, if you look at the definition of Pharisee, the very definition of Pharisee, the first definition is the historical one that'll break it down, like the Wikipedia entry, but the second definition of Pharisee is a a self-righteous hypocrite. 
So most of us don't want to, in our day-to-day, be called a Pharisee. But the thing is, the Pharisees meant well. Like Hillel the Elder, one of the founders of their thinking who developed their central text, he said, what is hateful you don't do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. See, they meant well, so why the apparent beef with Jesus? And I want to look at two reasons quickly before we get to Nicodemus that we see that the Pharisees and Jesus seems to be Jesus and his nemesis. It seems to be oil and water. Why couldn't they get along? And the first is that the grace Jesus introduced, it was a wrench in their equation. It threw a wrench in, in the whole system they had established because the, the question the Pharisees were pondering with their whole system was, well, if eternal life is good and God gives good things to good people, how do we determine who good people are? Who is a good person? How do you obtain this approval from God? And to figure out who is a good person, well, you need to set up a system to determine that. You need to set up a, a, a system, and, and in this system, you see 600-plus rules, even more rituals, and within that, there's established this hierarchy of holiness. There's levels to holiness. There's levels to sin and sinners, and, and it sounds over the top, but when you look all throughout history, any religion that, that man has cooked up or any religion that he's thought up, there's always some sort of, of something you're grasping for, hoops to jump through where you hope Somehow, some way, if you tap into your consciousness that's uncorrupted by culture or you just find the good in you, somehow you can tip the scale in your favor. You know, there was an old quote from an old hip-hop song by Cross Movement a long time ago where it said, without Christ, you aren't spiritual. You're just caught up in a bunch of spare rituals. Without Christ, you aren't spiritual. You're caught up in a bunch of spare rituals. And that was the religion of the Pharisees. They did things out of ritual, and they ended up missing Jesus. And we got to be careful because that's the, the religion we'll stumble blindly into if we take our eyes off grace. We've been talking for weeks now that there's a, a tension between walking in grace and walking in truth, walking with grace in one hand and truth in the other. And sometimes when we cling so tightly to truth, in our other hand, we fumble grace. We've said before that the gravitational pull of the church, it always seems to lean towards a graceless religion. But we find the one thing in Jesus' ministry, or one of the greatest things he stands against, is this graceless religion of his day, this system of the Pharisees. Because legalism doesn't create good people. It breeds self-righteousness, and it created in this system hypocrites. The Pharisee system, it, it didn't work. And one of the reasons we have to realize that it didn't work is they took the law, which paints this comprehensive picture of the character of God, and they make it about me. How do I make myself good enough for God? And their equation was broken. The law can't save. It only shows how broken we really are before a holy, holy God. You know, the grace God gives, it's a gift. It's it's not an achievement, and it threw their equation out the window. It took the equation, if they put it down on a legal pad, it lit it on fire, right? And we'll get, we'll get more to that on just how that happened in a second. But the second reason we see Jesus and the Pharisees butting heads is that his kingdom was contrary to their, their hopes. His kingdom, it was contrary to their model and what they hoped for. Nicodemus, he was a member of what was called the Sanhedrin. Now, what the Sanhedrin was, was 70 elder statesmen guided by the high priest's right-hand man. They represented the Jewish people before Rome in exchange for payment and peace. And with their shrewd politics, 
They awaited this military Messiah that they anticipated based on their interpretation of the Old Testament. And then along comes Jesus, this, this new rabbi who combines riveting teaching with miraculous healings. And in John 7, it says that people were starting to use the M word. They started to call Jesus the Messiah. Now, at that time in the kingdom of Israel, it was like everybody's boyhood dream that the Messiah would come in their lifetime and restore Israel to prominence. But Jesus, you could tell by his ministry, he was something different. He was more meek than militant. His power was controlled, not conquering. And his kingdom, it didn't come by force, but it came by grace. Yet his power was undeniable, and it was turning heads. And this was potentially politically explosive. So it had the Sanhedrin's attention. And so we see in John chapter 7 that the Pharisees, they come together to discuss Jesus. How can we get rid of him? Some of them, they wanted Jesus arrested. And we see Nicodemus, the man we're going to examine tonight, in verse 51. He says, is it legal to convict a man before giving him a hearing? See, he realized that to this point, this whole process was based on conjecture and allegations, but there had been no real in-depth investigation. And you know, isn't this where the world is so often? Right? They've heard about Jesus. They've heard secondhand uh, from somebody they know, or they've heard from, on TV this or that, but they've never really gone to the text. They've never really gone to the word, read from cover to cover, just who God is, what Jesus came to do, and what he taught and what he stood for. It's powerful, this picture, because it's like a game of telephone where after a while it just all gets twisted. But we need to go to the source. We need to go to the origin, and that's the word of God. There's a pastor, Peter Adam, who said, without the Bible, the remembered Christ becomes an imagined Christ. It's like Anthony talked about a couple weeks ago right here. We, we build this potato head Jesus where some of the stuff from the Bible we like, so we keep it. Some of it we don't like, so we throw it out. In other instances, we just adopt what we've heard secondhand, but have we ever gone to the text to see who Jesus is and what he truly commands? Because you'll get all kinds of screwy stuff. But even the scholars, even the teachers of Jesus' age, they, they fell into this trap. They said, and you can almost hear the sarcasm in their voice to Nicodemus, like, check the scriptures. Does, that, does a prophet come from Galilee? And you know what's funny? Is if they would have checked the scriptures, Five prophets came from Galilee. <laughs> Jonah, Nahum, Hosea, Elijah, and Elisha all hailed from Galilee. And you know what? It, it, even more concerning when you're looking at what they're talking about here in this passage, if they would have just gone and asked about Jesus, they would have realized he wasn't born in Galilee. He was actually born in Bethlehem. Or maybe if they would have gone to Old Testament scripture, they would have come across a, the verse Isaiah 9, chapter 1, where it talks about how in Galilee, God's glory was going to fill Galilee. One of the most beautiful pictures in the Old Testament of the coming Messiah where it says that those who have been in darkness have seen a great light. All of this was available to them, yet they were the ones in the dark. It's a powerful picture because the story of Nicodemus is not a warning for the, the non-believer. It's a warning for those of us in church who have been going to church for a long time, got a good attendance record, got a lot of head knowledge, but sometimes our knowledge can be an impediment to new revelation. I've been there, I've done that, I've, I've heard that, I've read that before. The more we settle into a system of life and rituals of belief, the more complacent we can become and the less receptive we can be to revelation. This is what had happened to the Pharisees. But lucky for Nicodemus and lucky for us and lucky for the Gospels, he wasn't so passive. 
You know, in his statement about their attempt to convict Jesus, we see that he was wrestling with his own convictions and beliefs about who Jesus was. And no doubt he was one of the people referenced. It's in John chapter 12, verse 42. It says, many people did believe in him, speaking of Jesus. However, including some of the Jewish leaders, but they wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. For them, the approval of man superseded the approval of God. And was Nicodemus one of these leaders? It's a question a lot of people have wrestled with, especially when you look at John 7 and you look at John 3, and it's the question we're going to wrestle with tonight. But to do that, I want to flash back, and then I want to flash forward, and then we'll close. I want to flash back to John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. This is the first time we see Nicodemus in the Gospel of John. It says, there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. How are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things. I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. I want to look at three portions of this passage, but even as we start, again, this is Jesus' first encounter in the Gospel of John with the Pharisees. Right before this, he had done miracles. Right before this, he had flipped tables in the temple. So you better believe he had the, the Sanhedrin's and the Pharisees' attention. So, so Nicodemus comes and finds him, and he's standing in for the religious elite. But as we study this, we'll realize that he's, he's standing in for you and me as well. And in verse 2, it mentions that it happens at night. That's the setting. Nicodemus came after the sun had set. He came at night, and he's one of only two people in the Gospels to do that. The other is Judas, because darkness can, it can allude to unbelief. It can also allude to evil, and it's powerful because if you think just a couple chapters back in the book of John, in John 1, verses 4 through 5, this is the amplified version. It says, in him was life and the power to bestow life, and it's talking about Jesus. It says, and the life was the light of men. The light shined on in the darkness, and the darkness did not understand it. But we have to give Nicodemus credit. He comes seeking understanding. He might not have understood, but he, he came to find understanding. And he didn't settle for secondhand knowledge or hearsay or conjecture. He wanted to come to Christ and get it right from his lips, who he was and what he was for. And I love that Jesus escalates things from the jump. From the jump, he, he already knew why Nicodemus was coming. 
He, he already knew the questions that were on his heart. And before he could even ask anything, Jesus answers the question that the Pharisees had built their entire system on. How do I win the approval of God? And I love that he doesn't give them an 11th commandment. He doesn't give them some 700th ritual to live by. But he simply says that we must be born again. Or maybe in your Bible, there maybe there's an asterisk next to born again. Because that can also be translated born from above. Actually, if you look at the Gospel of John, in a lot of other verses, when he uses that word, it speaks to being born from above. So maybe that's what Jesus meant, but, but Nicodemus in this moment, he takes it as the other meaning, being born again. So maybe that's why there's confusion here. But we see in this text, no matter what, Jesus is saying, hey, you need to be reborn. And he doesn't say anything about the law, doesn't say anything about ritual, doesn't say anything about the temple. He says, hey, you need to be reborn. You know, in the modern church, especially in in our day, in our progressive culture, we like this. We, too, like to pull back from laws and rituals and what sometimes we awkwardly reference as, quote, unquote, religion. We pull back from the system of the Pharisees, again, because it doesn't create good people. It doesn't work. It creates this holier-than-thou aura where, again, there's this hierarchy of holiness that nobody, if we're honest, is drawn to. But the coin is flipped. And the opposite side is the pendulum swings as we step into wanting to be authentic. It's almost a buzzword these days in the church and in our culture, just being authentic. As the world would say, keeping it real. But so often being authentic and quote-unquote keeping it real, it's just code and a synonym for staying the same. You know, we've talked about how grace is so powerful because it says come as you are. But so often we just see it applied as come as you are and, and stay there if you'd like. And it gets the first half right. Because it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. That's what's so beautiful about grace, so beautiful about the cross, is that we can go before the cross and say, I'm not okay. And yet there's grace for that day in, day out, and that never changes. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. It's not okay to stay that way. Again, the power of grace that we've talked about is that it meets us where we're at. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much God loves us. But the, another facet of God's love is he loves us so much that he doesn't leave us there. He calls us forward. We need complete, comprehensive transformation. We need to be reborn. And at some point, you get to this point, you're like, well, then why did he even give us the law? Why don't we just throw that out and embrace grace? And I think we fall in this trap when we think that the law was given as a means for salvation. We think it was the original path to approval for God. Like it was some plan A that didn't work, so then plan B, Jesus Christ had to be sent. But that's totally wrong. Jesus was and always has been plan A. The law, however, gives us the diagnosis. Paul says in Galatians 3.10, he says, But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are what? Is it, is it saved? Like, like, what does it say? Because, mind you, this is how Nicodemus and the Pharisees and so many people in the church even till today have lived their life. Well, if I want approval with God, I'm going to observe his law and I'm going to be obedient. But it says in Galatians 3.10 that those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. Paul's basically saying not only does it not have the ability to save you, but in all reality for you and anyone else using it to try to earn approval before God, It'll bring a curse upon your life. Your deeds of morality as a means of salvation will actually one day in the court before Jesus, the judge, be held against you. Because we've all got a broken track record. If we're all honest in this moment. We've got to be reborn. Saved by grace, 
through faith, not by works, not through the law. But the law is important because it gives the diagnosis. We're cursed, but grace provides the cure. You know, the law still shows that we need to change, but thank goodness Jesus gives us the means to change. He, through the cross, extends grace to be born again. Now, it's clear that Nicodemus, mind you, he doesn't have Galatians. He doesn't have all these other references. He knew the Old Testament, but in this moment, as he's talking to Jesus, there's confusion. He says, how can this be? But as Nicodemus slowly began to grasp God's grace, what kind of weight was lifted off his chest? Jesus called him Israel's teacher. Nicodemus was a big deal. But nobody is a grace graduate. Nobody has achieved some level of morality where they've transcended a need for God's grace. Nicodemus hadn't, and deep down he had to be aware of that. Because nobody, right, reads the Ten Commandments and thinks, oh, I'm good. I got this, right? Nicodemus knew not only the Ten Commandments, but all the other laws and codes in the Old Testament. And he knew his own life. So he had to know, man, I'm never going to cut it. And then if you, if you somehow, some way look at the Ten Commandments and think, yeah, I'm good, right? Like, I haven't lied or done this or that. Like, the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't say, hey, let's throw out the law. He elevates the law. The one I think we're all probably good on, and if we're not, you can meet me at the altar later. Uh, most of us probably haven't murdered anybody, right? Like, most, throw our hands up. At least I haven't killed anybody, right? Put your hand down, Mike. We'll talk later. But uh, even at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, oh, you ever been angry at somebody? You ever had malice against somebody in your heart? Then you've murdered them in your heart. It's like, come on, Jesus. Come, let me just have the one commandment that I thought I was good with. You had to take that one too and somehow elevate it, so I, I need your grace. But that's what he does. Jesus says it's an issue of the heart. You don't just need the law. You need to be reborn. See, the law wasn't given as just some moral ladder that we climb. How many of you guys remember the game Shoots and Ladders? I had that. Younger folks are like, what are you talking about? But shoots and ladders. You rolled the dice. Sometimes you got the ladder. Sometimes you got the shoot and you had to go back. The, more, the moral law, the code, it wasn't given as this game of shoots and ladders. It wasn't this ladder we're called to climb because in our flesh, we always hit the shoot again and again and we end back up at square one. Religion based on works without grace, if we're honest, it's exhausting. You're always clamoring to prove your worth. You're clinging to this hierarchy of, of supposed holiness. Few things are more exhausting than being religious without grace. Trying to keep a count of days since the last time I did X or Y. Trying to check off everything on this checklist so I can feel like I have God's approval. Man, you wonder why the Pharisees always seem grumpy, because they were living like this. You wonder why Saul, before he became Paul, was this raving, angry lunatic. It's because this was his lifestyle. Always trying to measure up. Being religious, observing God's law without grace is frustrating. It's exhausting. But this revelation that Nicodemus comes to about God's grace as a teacher of the law, Jesus says, hey, it was for everyone. He uses the word everyone. Quote him on that. Not just the Jews, not just the sons of Abraham, but everyone, the whole world. Now, this would have challenged Nicodemus and everything he believed about who the sons of Abraham were and their exclusiveness, their privilege, and again, this hierarchy of holiness that he'd lived with. That had to be thrown out. As Jesus says in Matthew to the Pharisees, he says, truly I tell you, prostitutes and tax collectors are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Their hierarchy of holiness, Jesus is saying it's trash. You need to get rid of it. Grace toppled it. 
Grace isn't about who's last or first. It simply doesn't keep count. In one of his last acts before Jesus went to heaven, he's on the cross with two thieves. And one of them, who's clearly overcome with pain and fear, he asks to repent. And Jesus forgives this thief on the cross next to him, who by all means was, again, probably repenting out of fear, who would never study the Bible, never learn all of its laws, or make amends for the laws that he broke. And yet his salvation is this another shocking reminder that grace is a gift. It's not an achievement. Again, we so say so often that life isn't fair because bad things happen to good people, when in reality, Romans 3.23, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short. The reality is, in grace, that, that good things happen to bad people. I'd imagine the Pharisees and Sadducees watching this play out on the cross are like, how's he got salvation, this quote-unquote bad person, this good thing happening to him on the cross? And again, we've said it before. I think it was R.C. Sproul who said, uh, bad things happening to a good person. It only happened once, and he volunteered because his name was Jesus. For everyone else, we should rejoice that through grace, good things happen to bad people, you, me, and everyone. And then lastly, the last point I want to see from John chapter 3 is Jesus said that he would be lifted up. You know, the law itself, it came with this assumption that man wasn't going to be able to uphold it because man was broken. So I got in the same instance, he gives them the system of sacrifice, gives it to them at the same time. Yet every Old Testament sacrifice pointed forward to Jesus, pointed forward to Christ's sacrifice, where he says, I'll be raised up on a cross. And he references this Old Testament text where Moses put a bronze serpent on a staff so that anyone who looked upon it would be healed because there were venomous snakes biting the Israelites. And anyone who looked upon that would be healed. And Jesus was saying, I'll be raised up so that people can find eternal life. And again, this would be confounding and, and, and disturbing to Nicodemus because the Messiah, he wasn't coming to command and conquer. He's coming to be taken captive and killed. All of this to Nicodemus was like being in darkness and seeing the light for the first time, like we talked about in John chapter 1. I, I know Steph and I have been rocking Raj to sleep. We take turns, and you do it in a dark room. And it's crazy how much your eyes can adjust after 30 minutes of trying to put your son to sleep in a dark room. And then you come out, and maybe you go in the bathroom and turn the lights on. Or maybe you're not rocking a baby to sleep. You're just getting up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom. When you hit the light switch, those lights turn on, especially if you just woke up. There's confusion. There's a moment where your eyes have to adjust to what you're seeing. It's almost like we see this with Nicodemus spiritually. At first, there's confusion. He's grappling with the truth, and, and he doesn't have an immediate transformation where in the next chapter he's with the disciples or in the very next chapter he's right there at Jesus' next miracle. But we see God working in him through the gospel of John. Again, we have this conversation in chapter 3, but then in chapter 7, we see that he's still wrestling with this as they're having this conversation about who Jesus was and what they should do with him. And then finally, he shows up again in the narrative that maybe you'll read this week, the, the Easter narrative. We see him in John chapter 19. We see him again on Good Friday. When Nicodemus saw Jesus lifted up on the cross, because of the conversation he had in John chapter 3, he all of a sudden realized the assurance he had of his right standing before God. Again, Jesus himself had said that the Son of Man will be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. And seeing Jesus lifted up, Nicodemus finally, after all these years of trying to find the equation for right standing before the God he loved and adored, he finally realized, man, I've got assurance of that right standing before God. 
And in standing before men, it didn't matter anymore. He broke ranks with Joseph of Arimathea, and he, and he publicly supports Jesus when Jesus died and is buried. You know, I saw a quote from a recent conference. It's John Piper. He said, one of the marks that you've truly seen Christ is you cease to be a people pleaser. But, you know, there's one step beyond that. It's not enough to simply take the step from, oh, I'll, I'll work to gain the approval of men. I'll stop doing that, and I'll work to gain the approval of God. Maybe as I'm talking about all this, you went where my mind went when I was prepping this sermon, Galatians 1.10. Paul says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If, I'm, if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of God. You've probably seen that verse quoted before. You've seen it on an Instagram post in calligraphy, right, looking pretty, right? That, that's the danger of the Instagram gospel or, or coffee mug gospel where you get the verse, but you don't get the whole message. Because if you look at what Paul would go on to write in the letter to the Galatians, it's that, look, your approval from God doesn't come from observing the law. Your approval from God comes through grace and grace alone. And you already have that through the cross. He opens his letter to the, the, in Thessalonians in a similar way. But the phrasing, it speaks to this reality. Again, it says, it says in Thessalonians, for we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. So it sounds very similar to Galatians 1.10, but the, the difference is he says here in the past tense, we're approved by God. See, Paul's desire to please God and not people that he speaks of in both verse, it, it flows from his approval, not, not for God's approval. It comes from God's approval. If Paul was speaking from contemporary imagery, he'd probably pull from the show The Voice. How many of you guys have seen the show The Voice? I swear it's on every night if I turn my TV on between like 7 and 9 o'clock. It's, it's on one of the channels. Now, I've heard multiple pastors pull from this imagery, uh, pastors and authors. I don't know who originally did it so often. It's like, well, it's probably C.S. Lewis, but the voice didn't exist when C.S. Lewis was alive. So I don't know who it was, but it clearly wasn't me. I've never watched the show from beginning to end. But if you're not familiar with the voice, there's four judges, right? Four judges, musicians, producers, and they've got these chairs that are facing the audience. And behind them come people, singers, performers that are trying to win their approval. They perform as they face the other direction, only hearing their voice, hoping, wishing upon a star, that as they perform and as they uh, show their talents, that one or more of these judges will, will turn their chair and, and show that they've accepted them. And, and, and the analogy is this. So often we do that with God. So often we go through our life trying to perform, hoping that somehow, some way, we'll get God's approval. Trying to somehow jump through these hoops that we give ourselves meet these standards we give ourselves, not stumble for X amount of days. Again, we create checklists where, man, if I could just do this, then I'll feel like God has approved of me, and he's, he's spun the chair around. We live life like it's a big audition, but through grace, the door's already been opened. The chair's already been turned. We don't need to achieve God's approval. We need to accept it and live in assurance of God's approval. I love what Paul says in Philippians 3.16. He puts it this way. Let us live up to what we've already attained. Let us live up to what we've already attained. I was praying over this sermon yesterday, and I felt God put it this way, that grace properly grasped means that we don't operate for approval, but we operate from assurance. You know, grace properly grasped doesn't mean that we, it means that we don't operate for the approval of man because it doesn't matter. 
We don't operate for the approval of God because he's already given it to us through grace. We need to operate from the assurance that, hey, God through the cross already extends grace. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to do it through works or the law, but it's available to me. When you grasp that, your life changes. You know, I I hold Raj and I just pray for the day when I can, like, actually communicate with this living being, right? When I can communicate to him and he can grasp the fact that nothing can ever disqualify him being my son. Again, that changes everything. You can be disqualified as all kinds of things. You can be fired as an employee. You can blow it as a father. You can get a divorce in your marriage, but nothing can ever disqualify him from being my son. It's the same with God. You know, in Romans 8, Paul says, come on, neither death nor life, angels nor demons, present nor the future, any powers, height or depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the Father's love. That is assurance. And again, that will change your life. That'll put wind in your sails that you didn't even realize was there. That's why when we see the disciples shrinking back, we see Nicodemus step forward. Because he heard and he took heed to the fact that Jesus said, when I'm lifted up on the in death on the cross. That's not the end. That's the beginning of eternal life being available to everyone. And Nicodemus moved in that assurance. It's in John chapter 19 where he shows up again. 19 verse 38 says, afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus's body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following the Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so, because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. You see, it was illegal in those days to bury the body of somebody that was crucified. The whole point of crucifixion was to utterly humiliate that individual, to publicly shame them. And after the crucifixion, the body would be taken down and put in the dump outside the city. This is where Jesus' body would have been if they hadn't have intervened. But Nicodemus comes forward with his other gentleman named Joseph of Arimathea, and they request that they receive the body. And it's interesting, Joseph of Arimathea is, is mentioned in other Gospels, but it's John that says, hey, this guy had been a secret disciple. And Nicodemus, standing by his side, did he have the same designation? And it's also powerful that John uses the past tense. He says, they had been, or he had been a secret disciple. Because in this step, he's stepping publicly in his support. But they probably had been a member of that ambivalent group, again, we, we saw in John 12, 44, who believed, but, but they feared the religious leaders, as it says here, that loved human praise more than the praise of God. But again, in John 19, Joseph and Nicodemus, they blew their cover, they stepped out of fear, and they took a step of faith. They risked their honor to honor Jesus. And again, this public gesture, it, it had risk to it. What they were asking was illegal. They could cross the, the Pharisees and the crowd that had demanded that Jesus had been killed. And then there's also the whole uh, idea that they could be made ceremonially unclean by handling the body. But they went on with it. And it says that Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of spices. Now, how many of you guys have done yard work already this spring, summer, right? A bag of mulch. It's 20 pounds. Your standard bag of mulch, 20 pounds. I know that because I used to work at a garden center. Don't worry, my man card is still intact. I can just plant really nice flowers. 
help you with your garden beds. But I also know about mulch. Average bag, 20 pounds. So Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of spices. He honors Jesus lavishly. His statement, it's a statement of faith put into action. His faith is spoken through these actions. But again, as Jesus said, and we've hit on it last week, that those who have been forgiven much, they forgive much. And those that have been given much, they give much. And don't miss this. As we close tonight and we come back next week for Easter, recognize this. Nicodemus set the stage for Easter. Nicodemus set the stage for Easter. While other disciples were falling away, Nicodemus stepped up. While Judas was the second person to come in to Jesus in the dark and in the night, it's Nicodemus, the first person who came to Jesus that night, that sets the stage for the most important morning in all of history, the most significant morning of all time. Without Nicodemus and Joseph to prepare Jesus for burial, there would have been no empty tomb, no visible proof that Christ had risen. The power of Jesus, the power of his resurrection in Scripture is that he called his shot. He made the claim that he would resurrect, and it was empirically verifiable when he was buried. The reason we can believe Jesus rose is because he wasn't dumped in some dump where somebody just strolling by could have took the body. Clearly, he was dead. He was buried and the tomb was put under guard. Nobody was just taking a stroll and scooped his body on up. And people who say he swooned and somehow he woke back up in the tomb, they don't know the burial procedure, right? This guy was wrapped up in so much burial cloth and 75 pounds of spices. You could do that to me alive and I would, I would make it, right? I would suffocate. But Nicodemus' faith in Jesus and this small, simple act, it sets the stage for the resurrection. It sets the stage for Easter. But if you keep reading in the New Testament, there's no mention of him in Acts. There's no mention of him leading great revivals. There's no mention of him starting churches with Paul. There's no mention of him working miracles in Jesus' name. And maybe you could say that's a knock on the man, but, but I think maybe that's indicative of the man he became. Because, again, he traded in the approval of man and seeking approval for something more. It's very well he may have been around with the later events with the disciples, but it's fitting that we don't hear from him again. Because he found assurance, not in the approval of man, but in the approval he knew he had found from God. And in operating from that assurance, he set the stage for Easter. It wasn't through some grand speech or some physical miracle. It was a simple act of honoring God. How can we set the stage this Easter through simple acts of honoring God, glorifying God in simple ways day to day? No longer with the motivation of trying to win God's approval, but from assurance of the approval we found in Christ. Again, grace properly grasped, it means that we don't operate for approval. We operate from assurance. So, man, if I could have the worship team come up. Tonight, I just want to close and encourage you. Put down the weight of seeking approval through works and pick up the assurance of salvation that's only found in grace. Because, again, if we're all honest, we're works in progress. But it's okay to not be okay. It's simply not okay to stay that way. If we're all 100% transparent, we stumble, we need grace, and we need assurance that God's approval, that his daily support, it never leaves us. See, what's, what's powerful is if we let go of truth and merely lean into grace, we get caught in cycles, mountaintops and valleys, peaks and pits. Grace, though, see, it's because grace recognizes your value in spite of those mistakes. 
But if you let go of truth and never truly address that problem, then it's like Proverbs where it says, a dog returns to its vomit. We'll be, never be at peace because we never change, because we let go of truth. But on the other side of that coin, when we lean heavily into truth but we don't cling to grace, we become wrecked by guilt. We become focused on our flaws rather than Christ's sacrifice. You know, if you say, man, I can't forgive myself, then it's because you're serving a lowercase God, yourself and your self-righteousness. Let go of your shame tonight and lay hold of God's grace. We'll never be at peace in a graceless religion that leans solely on truth because the truth is we can't measure up to God's holiness. But grace takes whatever measurements we've been using <laughs> and it throws them out the window. If I'm honest in a little more than a decade of following Christ, I've been on both sides of that fence, clinging to grace, not holding on to truth, clinging to truth, not holding on to grace. But again, if we apply truth at the cost of grace, we'll forever feel the shame of not measuring up. But if we apply grace at the cost of truth, we'll forever return to shame because we never change to fit God's truth. Either way, the result for me in those moments would be shame. You don't feel the grace of God. You don't feel the support of God. You don't feel his approval nor the assurance of his approval. And I don't know what camp you might fall into tonight, but let God's grace wash you again in assurance. When you properly grasp God's grace, it means that you don't operate for approval. You operate from the assurance that you've already got God's approval, and that never changes. Never changes. His grace is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let's walk each day with grace and truth in hand. But tonight, can we stand up and can we lift our hands? Because lifting your hands, it's a, it's a sign of surrender. It's a sign of worship. And, and man, the more I hang out with Raj, it's a sign of me reaching up for my dad. It's a sign of me reaching up for the one that can pick me up. And if you're in need of a pick me up tonight, you're in need of just a fresh reminder of God's grace, then I encourage you as we go back into worship, just lift your hands before God and say, God, wash me again in your grace. Wash me again in the assurance of salvation, the assurance of the work you did at the cross that nothing can change, nothing can take away. doesn't matter that we're a week before Easter. Easter already happened, and it can affect us right now. Lord God, I pray that you would open our eyes to the glory of the cross, the glory of your grace, the glory of your church, God, which isn't peripheral to the world. God, but it's where you fill everything with your presence. God, fill us tonight. Give us a fresh indwelling of your spirit, a fresh overflow, Lord God. God, we worship you tonight in Jesus' name.